Welcome. If you're just uh, tuning in for the first time to the Live Big Today podcast, my name is Terrence Berner. I am a repented financial advisor. On today's episode, we're going to get into why uh, I started the podcast off by saying that. Uh, if this is the first time you're listening in, the Live, Live Big Today podcast is about a couple of things. One is we kind of break it up. Tuesdays is uh, more personal development, business strategy, those types of things. So for those of you that have an idea about starting a business and you're wondering where to go from here, or maybe you've got a business and you're trying to figure out how to make your next 100 grand, 200 grand, your next million, we'll talk about scaling and some things there. But specifically, Thursday is about real estate. Okay, so if you if you don't know, I own a turnkey real estate company. So what we do is we buy the house, we fix it, we put renters in there, tenants in the property, and then we allow people to own them at the end already cash flowing. So we've done all the heavy legwork. It's for it's it's ideal for somebody that has a great way of already earning income. They want to own real estate, they just don't want the headaches that come with it. So today I want to talk about if you don't own real estate as a part of your retirement plan, what else are you going to own? Okay, so sometimes people will ask me, well, if I don't do this, then what? It's like, exactly, if you don't do this, then what? Um, what are you going to go do? Put your money in an annuity? There's a separate podcast on, on annuities. The number one investment vehicle in our country is a mutual fund. And what I realized being a financial advisor for, I don't know, 12, 14 years, however long it is, don't hold me to the day, long time. And not only was I a financial advisor, but I ran my own company. So I wasn't a financial advisor that went to work for one of these big companies, a Merrill Lynch, Charles Schwab, A.G. Edwards, uh, Smith Barney, Payne Weber, you know, any of those companies. Uh, I went... And I was very fortunate that I got mentored early on by a guy that owned his own practice. And let me tell you why. First of all, we were fiduciaries. So we weren't advisors in the, the financial advising world. For those of you that care, there's really, there's a broker where he's basically selling products on behalf of somebody else, or he's working directly for the company to sell their products, but they're their own in-house, private you know, private label products, okay? Or uh, you could become a fiduciary, which is you're held to a higher standard. It's much like, much like a CPA, like an attorney. And the guidelines around becoming a fiduciary state, very simply that you have to do what's in the best interest of your clients, okay? And you might think, well, everybody should have to do that. Well, that's not... That's not really how the financial advising world um, is split up. Even to this day, that's not how it works. And so my point with all of this is, as a fiduciary, I had the opportunity to choose who we worked with. And so we always worked with, I mean, we, we ran our company like United States of America runs its economy, right? It, the best person wins, Okay, the best person wins. And so a lot of times we would start using a company and it would be great for our clients for a while. And then they'd make some decisions that all of a sudden didn't put our, our clients at the front of the line in terms of benefit. It kind of slanted where it, it benefited more of the company or 
maybe even the financial advisor. And so we would move, right? We were always in those situations, we'd say, this doesn't make sense for us to be here. Sure, our client is still getting results, but they're like third in the pecking order, right? <laughs> the, the person getting the most results is the company, and then the financial advisor, then the client. And we were always determined to the best of our ability to keep solutions for our clients where they benefited from it the most, and then maybe the company, and then maybe the advisor, right? And so my point with all of this is, is the number one investment vehicle in this country is mutual fund. And I found after all those years that nobody understands how they work. Most of the time, the financial advisor that's helping people put money in mutual funds, don't know how, they, they don't know how it works. Now, how do I know this? Because I hired hundreds of advisors from all kinds of different companies. You name the company, I probably hired them from there. And these guys would come over. They were very intelligent, great people, just poorly trained. They were taught to sell, not to understand what it is that they were helping people with from a solution standpoint. And I can't say that everybody was like that, but the majority were for sure. And one of the things that's kind of crazy is I realized that this whole entire mutual fund world came and was born from pensions slowly dissolving away, right? And so what happened is, you know, our grand, you know, my grandparents back in the day, they would go work for a company for 20, 30, 40 years or whatever, and they would get a pension. And the pension would say, hey, based on a percentage of your final years of income, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars every single month. And they could count on that money coming in every single day. They could go live their life. They weren't in charge with how that money was invested. It was completely on the company's shoulders. They had to set money aside for you know my grandparents and make sure that they invested it wisely so that when my grandparents wanted to retire and take their pension, that there was money there for them to do that. And even when they retired, they didn't have to wake up every single day and look at what the stock market had decided to do. Their income wasn't determined by if the stock market was up or down. And the beauty about that is, is a couple of things. One, whatever they chose to do for a living, they could just focus on that. They didn't have to become an expert in anything else. The second thing is when they retired, they actually got to retire and they didn't have to wake up every single day in fear of what the stock market decided to do, which would determine whether they could stay retired. Now, fast forward. There was a big shift that happened in the 80s where all of a sudden uh, companies shifted from pensions to 401k plans and then the mutual fund business just exploded. And I'll get into what a mutual fund here is in a second. Uh, And by the way, you should care because most of you, if you're listening to this, you either have owned mutual funds, guaranteed, or you know somebody who has. You're more than likely, if you've had any type of corporate job, you have owned a mutual fund. If you've invested in a 401k, you've owned a mutual fund. And so I'm going to give you some free education on what to do there. Not advice. You need to get advice about your specific situation, but I am going to get you some information. Okay, so what happened in the 80s is we started to shift from pensions into a 401k system, which really put the burden of retirement, shifted that from the company to the individual. So now, nowadays, this is how it works. You not only have to go be an engineer all day, go be a CPA all day, go be a plumber, an electrician, whatever it is, go do that for a living all day, 
And then you have to make sure you're making the correct decisions for your retirement when you're not working. So you've got to become an expert or you can blindly trust that somebody's going to do it for you. And we all know how blind trust usually happens, right? Where that leads to nothing good. It leads to you crossing your fingers and hoping that there's something there when you need it. Okay. And so you've got to go work eight, nine, 10 hours. Excuse me. I'm a little sick still. You got to go work eight, nine, 10 hours and then come home at night and become an expert about something with the very limited time that you have off. That's like, would you go show up to have open heart surgery from a guy that does it part-time one to two hours a night? Or would you rather go with the guy that spent, you know, 15 years going to school, 14 years going to school, whatever, he specialized in it, he's done 2,000 surgeries, 98% success rate, all of that, right? Or would you like to go to the guy who maybe learned about it on YouTube and the information that he got sometimes was a little shaky because you couldn't ever verify the source that it came from, right? I, I mean, I know what you're thinking, right? You're thinking like any logical person. I'm taking the guy who's cut open, 2,000 people, 98% success rate, went to school, da-da-da-da-da, published in a magazine, that's my guy, right? If anybody's cutting into me. But we don't treat our retirement the same way, Okay. And again, you wouldn't just show up and say, okay, cut me open. You would want to understand what it is they're going to do. Now, maybe you're not going to understand all the technicalities of it, but you'd want to have an understanding of it. That doesn't happen right now in our retirement at all. We just know a lot of times that money comes out of our check. I remember the first and only 401k plan I invested in, I was in my early 20s. This is right before I started my first company. And... I realized, and again, this is kind of what helped shift me wanting to get into financial advising, is I had about uh, 15000 bucks I'd put away into that over, I don't know, a year, 18 months or something, whatever. Timeline doesn't matter. And I remember leaving that job and then wanting to get that money out to do, I, I had this opportunity to flip some cars. And they're like, uh, sorry, can't do that. And, and by the way, if you do, well, they didn't say, no, you can't do that. They said, Okay, we'll do it, but you've got to pay all the taxes on it, and you've got to pay a 10% penalty. So when it all shook out, I was giving away like 40 cents of every dollar in taxes and penalties on my own money, and I had no idea. Now, ultimately, it was my responsibility to know what was going on with my money. And so from that point forward, I realized I need to be accountable and responsible for understanding how this works, and it just deep dove me into reading a lot of books and then eventually getting some mentorship and becoming a financial advisor. And it completely altered the way I look at money. And so my point with this is, is you're not going to learn how to get full-time results working part-time. What do I mean? You're not going to get the same results a guy that does this all the time in one to two hours a night. Now, is there somebody out there that, you know, you're a genius and you just have a, a easy, it's easy for you to understand the financial markets? Okay, cool. Um, I beg to differ though, because I, I, when we managed money, I was on phone calls with guys that managed billions of dollars and most of the time they were wrong on their predictions. So I don't know how you would manage to be right, but that's neither here nor there. 
My point is, is as this big shift happened in the 80s, it's, it put the responsibility of making sure that we all have enough money saved and it's invested in places that it can grow and we understand it. You know, all of that shifted on our shoulders and it now became our responsibility. It wasn't like our grandparents where we got the, they got the pension, could go retire, live their life, not have to worry. Now we've got to make sure that we know what we're doing. Now, this is how a mutual fund works, generally, okay? A mutual fund, you see what happened in the, in the crash between 2007, 2009, there was another crash before that, 2000 to 2002, right there somewhere, is people realized that they had money in mutual funds and they didn't like the outcome when all of a sudden they lost a bunch of money. The problem with that is they thought that the guy that was managing the money just didn't know what he was doing. And that couldn't be further from the truth. The guy was very smart. Okay? What happened was is the investment was set to fail from the very beginning. This is what I mean. So a mutual fund, what a mutual fund is, is like take uh, shares of Berkshire Hathaway, for example. There are hundreds of thousands of dollars to purchase Class A shares of Berkshire Hathaway. So unless you have that kind of money to just invest in Warren Buffett's company, uh, you know, if you have 50 grand, you're, you're not going to get in. You're not going to be able to buy a class A share of his stock. And by the way, if you only have, you know, uh, a few hundred thousand dollars, it doesn't leave you a lot of extra money to invest in other things. So you have no way to diversify, right? So my point with all of this is, is you now, if you had 50 grand, you can then put it into a mutual fund. And this is what happens to a mutual fund. A mutual fund is made up of thousands of different investors. And these investors all put in different amounts of money. Usually, I mean, the minimum could be zero, you know, or it could be $250, $500, $1,500, whatever, right? They're really low minimums. Because what happens is you take a thousand people that all, you know, have put in a thousand bucks. Now, all of a sudden, you have the effects of big money going into a, a mutual fund. Because what happened with this big shift from the pension funds to the mutual funds is you used to have these money managers that manage these pension funds. So imagine this. Imagine that you owned a business, and that business only had three clients, but all three of those clients had $2 billion in assets, so you managed $6 billion. So imagine owning a business that manages $6 billion. You're doing pretty well. You don't have a lot of problems as a business. Now, what happened, though, is with the big shift in the 80s, now all of a sudden, instead of managing a pension fund with $2 billion, they shifted to an individual 401k system where you had to work with people individually. So you couldn't just manage the entire thing as, uh, you know, as, as necessarily as one big client. And so what happened is these big money managers thought, well, okay, I can't afford to work with the guy that's only got 100 grand. Now, again, they're used to managing one client with $2 billion. This is an example. I'm using really loose examples just to give you an idea of the story. And so you go from a client with $2 billion, now that client gets split up and there's 20000 There's still $2 billion, but it's you have to work with 20,000 individual people. And some of those guys have a million bucks and some of those guys have a thousand bucks. And 
you quickly understand I can't make a living working with everybody. There's just not enough hours in the day. And so the choice has to be made. And they decide, well, we're just going to work with super wealthy people or we're going to kind of pigeonhole and force people to invest in these things called mutual funds. And a mutual fund is where you have a bunch of people that don't have a lot of money that can all pool their money together and they mutually fund an investment together. So again, you get a thousand people that have a thousand bucks, right? You get my point. And so now that manager manages that, you know, the 10 million bucks from all the different investors and he doesn't have to work individually with individual people. That makes sense. Because you're, y'all's you're doing is you're pooling your money into one investment. And he's gonna, what he's going to do is he's going to do a couple of things. <clears throat> First of all, the mutual fund, <coughs> excuse me, the mutual fund has to define how it's going to invest. Okay, through what's called a prospectus. And this prospectus is the governing guidelines of the mutual fund. And I'm going to Keep this really simple and, and try not to go full-blown nerd on you. But this prospectus says a couple of things, okay? It says where the money's going to be invested, which type of companies it's going to be invested in. So, for example, it may say, look, we're going to invest in mega cap or large cap companies. So we're going to invest in your companies like your Googles, your Wells Fargo's, your Chase's, Bank of America, Amazon, those big, big brands, okay? And it's going to say, hey, we're going to invest all, you know, 100% of the fund is going to be invested. That's our, they call that a style, right? So they define the type of style the mutual fund is. Now, the thing about the style is, is if there's a shift in that market, okay, in that uh, large cap or mega cap market, where all of a sudden the value of those companies starts dropping. So let's say the mutual fund primarily invests in banking stocks, mega cap or large cap banking stocks. Now, what happens? If the banking sector gets hit, it's not it's not a lot of times that they can't see the hit coming. They can see the train coming down the tracks, but that prospectus or that set of guidelines, that style they've decided to be, they're bound to staying invested. So that prospectus will say you have to be invested 80% no matter what. You can only own 20% in cash. So what does that mean? They can only shift out 20% of the money in the funds to sit into cash. So even if they can see the train coming down the tracks, they can't avoid the devastation that's going to happen. They're bound to stay invested. Now, why is that a bad thing? Because what happens is an economy shifts and you're like, man, it's not such a good time to be invested in this, right? I got to get out of it. And, there, and because there's no predictability to that, you're kind of just stuck. And they're not, they're not going to call their investors and say, hey, just so you know, all these companies we're invested in are about to get whacked. Pull all your money out. They're not going to do that because if they do that, they'll go out of business. If they go out of business, they don't have a way to provide for themselves, and so what they do is they just try and they try and absorb the hit. They know that after the, the mutual fund loses value, money's get you know people are going to pull their money out, move it somewhere else. But then as the economy gets good again, they'll start getting positive returns and money will flow back in. Right. The challenge is is what happens most of the time is an investor says, "Well, that guy just didn't know what he was doing. I lost forty percent." 
you know? And so they'll move to a new mutual fund, not realizing that that guy is limited by the same set of rules. Because what they'll do is they'll move to the new mutual fund, right as there's a, the market starts to swing upwards again. And so when the market starts to swing upwards again, they see this new mutual fund guy, oh man, you know, he's, he's made 7% in the last four months. And they think, oh, that's my guy. And they move in, not realizing, okay, this guy is a, you know, he's a healthcare fund, mutual fund that invests in blah, 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 right? But his prospectus and the style he's decided to be still limit what he can do, just like the last mutual fund that you were in. And so you're just trading one situation for the other. It's like going out to the garage and uh, you're like, I'm not going to get in this black Ferrari today or this black Honda. I'm going to get in this red one, okay? But everything else is identical. You just feel like it's different because it's a different color. The stitching on the seat's a little different. The knobs look a little cooler, right? Because maybe it's you feel like it's one year newer, so it's completely different. Nope, still got the same issues, okay? And so a mutual fund, most of the time, by definition, it, it has to maintain to that style. Now, so why do I say I kind of started off the beginning? If you're not going to invest in real estate, then what are you going to do? This is why, in my opinion, real estate is superior to a mutual fund. Okay, one, if you invest the way we invest for cash flow, even if, and you still can't control the real estate market. You can't control if it takes a 20% dip. But if you've invested in a cash flow heavy asset, then you can look at what your hold time is. You're like, okay, if I hold this thing for 18 months, I'm back to a break even, which means after 18 months, I'm making money again. Okay. Whereas with the stock market, what happens? You lose 40% of your value, which is what happened in the crash of 07. You know, actually, they lost almost 60% of the value, depending on which index you, you looked at, which version of the stock market, to keep it simple, you looked at. And then you, you looked, okay, my break-even was, you know, it took four and a half years to get back what I lost, right? I lost 50%. It takes 100% uh, correction for me to get back what I already lost, Okay, because I'm working with half the money. Well, in real estate, what happens is if, if you've if you've invested for cash flow, you still have this predictable source of income that can keep coming in. You see, with real estate or with the stock market, you lose 40% in value. Explain to me, and nobody's talking back to me here, but think to yourself, how would I fix that problem? By jumping from one mutual fund to the next? I just explained to you how that worked. Uh, moving it to cash, having it sit in the bank, burying it in the floorboards. Okay, you're going broke safely because we have inflation that's happening. The cost of living is increasing. So even though you feel like you're not losing money, you really are. You know, you're losing it to the tune of 2 to 3% a year, which is a lot better than taking a 40% hit. I'll give you that. Okay, but what if you had a rental property that was worth 100 grand? Let's say you bought it. And net, after all your expenses, let's say that thing rented for a thousand bucks a month, net after all your expenses, you're at five hundred bucks. So you're getting six thousand dollars a year. Okay, so you're getting six thousand dollars a year in is bringing you know in terms of net operating income. Okay, six thousand bucks a year is what's going into your pocket. Now, let's say the market corrects and drops twenty percent. So what's twenty percent of a hundred grand? Twenty thousand. 
Okay, so now you have a property that's worth $80,000. You just lost 20,000 bucks. You'd have to hold your property for a little over three years, earning $6,000 a year, and you would be back at a break-even. Okay, you'd be back at a break-even. That's the power of real estate. You can actually see what it would take for you to get out of the property. And by then, what's happened? I mean, if you've got a mortgage on it, you also have the debt pay down. There's a lot of other things that go into, go into effect. You have the tax benefits and things. But just talking from a purely a return standpoint, in that scenario, if you had $6,000 a year coming in and the, and the real estate market tanked by 20%, which is just a... That's a that's a hard drop. I'm giving you a, a worst case scenario. What if it dropped 10%? Well, 10% of 100 grand is 10,000 bucks. So you hold the property for a year and a half and you're at a break even. My point is is that you want to have an exit strategy laid out. And it's not that you're going to sell the property. I mean an, an exit strategy from losing money. That's what I'm talking about. When when you realize, okay, you know, I'm upside down a little bit in this property, but I didn't purchase it for equity. I bought it for cash flow. And because I bought it in, in the right demographic, I, in my opinion, the right demographics, the $70,000 to $150,000 range, because in a down economy and people losing their jobs, they downsize, which creates the largest pool of renters in that space. Okay, It happened in the last crash. I mean, just insane amount of renters. Had no issues renting houses. And so my point with that is, is now you now you can look on paper and say, okay, I know how I'm going to solve this. I've still got the income coming in. So if you're using the rental properties to live off of, it doesn't alter the income that you can take from them every single month. What's maybe changed is the value of the actual house because the the real estate market dropped a little bit. But you can look and say, okay, if I keep this thing for three years, I'm back at a break even and I'm, po- and I'm in positive cash flow again. You have the ability to fix it, even if you had to discount your rent. So let's say instead of making 6000 bucks a year, you only made 5000 bucks a year because you had to drop your rents. Okay, 5000 bucks a year, lost twenty grand. Your break even's at four years. And by the way, that's at a time when the market is falling apart. That's at a time where probably the stock market has tanked by 50%. Okay? By 50%. And again, it's about control. <clears throat> now you're in the driver's seat. Whereas with the stock market, you're just at the mercy of whatever decides to happen during that time. With real estate, it's like, okay, I've I can create a plan. Now your plan's not always gonna not always gonna go as planned. I completely understand that. But you start to run some worst case scenarios that you have a lot of control over. It's like, okay, if I rent this for 900 bucks a month, my expenses are this. I factor in vacancies and maintenance is this. This should be about what my net income is. Multiplied that out by what I need to break even because it just lost $20,000 in value. I'm at three years. And again, I'm not even factoring in taxes and all of that. That's a whole different conversation. But my point is, is even when you factor in a worst case scenario, you have a lot of control with real estate that you're not going to get from any other investment. That is hands down the number one reason that you should own real estate. The number two is unless you're a crazy person 
and you like to just give away money. You're like allergic to money. I know some people, they're just like allergic to money and they like to just give money to the IRS. If that's you, don't own real estate. But if you want to learn some strategies on how to keep it, then real estate very well could be a big opportunity for you. Okay? <clears throat> so I hope, my hope is, is that, that your takeaway is the number one thing you should be thinking about as you're investing and preparing for your future because you don't have, you're not going to have that pension to rely on is how do you take control of your financial situation? How do you equip yourself and your family with the right information? And the third thing is invest in things that you can understand and that you have some control over. Now, you're never going to have control over everything. Okay, so just understand that. But if you can understand it and you can see what the upsides and downsides are, like, you know, that's why we're still buying a ton of real estate. It's like, okay, if this lost 20% of its value because the market fell apart, which all of the signs say that's not going to happen, but if it did, I'm going to break even again at three years, you know, maybe two and a half without, with the real numbers and how cash flow heavy they are. That's amazing. I have this thing that's still producing income to me. I still get all the tax benefits of that. And I still, because we leverage and we, we get debt on them, I still have that tenant that's actually paying down my, my note on my property. You know, if they're paying, if their rent is 750 bucks a month, or if it's at 900,000 bucks a month, I have another, you know, 4,000, maybe $4,000 a year. I'm just giving you rough numbers, three or $4,000 a year that's getting paid down on the debt. Well, that brings my break even back even faster. Factoring in taxes breaks my, brings back my break even even faster. You're not going to get that with stocks, plain and simple. So my challenge to you is equip yourself with the right information so that you and your family can set yourselves free the way that you want, whatever that means to you. Right? And we have a process where we can help you define that. If you'd like to schedule a call with my team, you can go to InvictusCashFlow.com. We've got an entire process there. Our number one goal is to teach people how to replace their income owning passive real estate. That is, you own more real estate, it doesn't create more of a burden on your time or your energy. We've created a process where the tenants, the toilets, the trash, all of the things that people think about that they don't like about real estate is all taken care of for them. So I appreciate you listening to my rant this far. You can count on me to just continue to give you all of these nuggets the difference between me and anybody else in real estate is I'm not some guy that I thought it sounded sexy and started doing it. I've been a financial advisor for a long time. I'll, I'll talk to you about some intricate planning things that you can do with owning real estate. Okay? And uh, tune in. We'll drop an episode here. You know, do our best to drop you one a week on specifically on real estate. So hope you and your family find yourselves blessed. And, you know... Look at getting your information right so you can get your money right. We'll see ya.